Good morning. My brother, Vern, and I did not speak for nearly 20 years. There wasn't a fight or anything. Uh, he was just nine years older than I was, and by the time I was 10, he'd moved away and married and started his own family. And then I grew up and moved halfway across the country, making contact all the more difficult. He became the vice president of an auto manufacturing plant in central Maine and the father of three small children. I was a radical feminist wearing black high tops and working a, a series of nonprofit jobs, struggling to come out of the closet. We just didn't seem to have anything in common. When I thought of Vern at all back then, it was with a sense of resignation. I had no hope that our relationship would ever change. The introduction to Ecclesiastes offers multiple poetic images of what it means to feel hopeless. Described as the wisdom of a great teacher and king, the passage claims that all of life is without purpose. Hard, bring, hard work brings no reward. Generations live and die without being remembered and there is nothing new under the sun. Even nature's wonders, the cycle of day and night, the movement of the winds, and the passage of water to the sea, generate only a weary sense of futility in our jaded narrator. In the words of another great teacher, John, John Cougar Mellencamp, oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. I think most of us have felt this way one time or another, and no wonder, with rising racism, intractable economic inequality, global warming, and war in Ukraine, who wouldn't despair? Part of the reason I come to church is to stave off this sense of monotony and hopelessness. And I'm far from alone. About 24 million Americans are taking antidepressants to help manage these feelings. And the World Health Organization estimates that rates of depression and anxiety increase by 25% in the first year of the pandemic alone. Clearly, the passage of Ecclesiastes that we read this morning is tapping into a difficult, but perhaps nearly universal human experience. The thing is, however much we may feel that way, it just isn't true. There are new things under the sun, like Facebook in, 20, in 2005. It offered a totally new way to connect with far-flung friends and complete strangers. And admittedly, this hasn't been entirely a good thing. Don't even get me started on the 2016 election. But in our 40s, my brother and I became Facebook friends and learned for the first time that we shared a common sense of humor and a love of cooking and uh, music and fantasy novels. About a year later, on a trip to Maine, 
my partner Susan and I had lunch with Vern and his new wife Janelle, and we discovered we were a really good fit. We drank beer and talked in ways that we rarely can with my sisters and their partners. Fast forward to 2021, when Janelle unexpectedly died one month after receiving her first Social Security check. My brother was devastated, but by this time, we had become close enough that he chose to spend his first Christmas alone with Susan and me. One of his adult daughters came too, and we all cooked and ate and talked. Our relationship had grown beyond what I could have possibly imagined, and Janelle will be remembered with love by us and so many others for years to come. Similarly, evidence of the difference hard work can make is all around us. Overtime pay, women's right to vote, my ability to get married, and the Democrats retraining control of the Senate. <laughs> All these were once believed to be impossible, but hard work by dedicated activists made them happen. On an even grander scale, the powerful change wrought by the sun, wind, and water is reflected everywhere. Forests grow, hurricanes rage, and great canyons are carved by the sheer force of running rivers. Or, on a much more mundane level, I just took an intro to sewing class and was truly amazed to discover that with three yards of fabric, a few hours, and an ingenious machine that itself was only invented, you know, 100 years ago or so, I could make an apron. <laughs> Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to make up a, a pitch for excessive positivity here. I find the when life gives you lemons, make lemonade folks pretty irritating and irrational. When bad things happen, it makes sense to get angry, upset, or just go numb for a while. Sometimes life is pretty repetitive and disappointing. And clearly, my brother Vern, his wife Janelle, my partner Susan, and I will all be largely forgotten 100 years from now. And perhaps most importantly, clinical depression is a serious medical issue that can't be overcome just with positive thinking. And if this is something you're struggling with, I really encourage you to get help. But that being said, I believe a mysterious force that I choose to call God worked through the flawed vehicle of Facebook to bring my brother and me together again after years of separation. Although not a world-changing event, I think this is miraculous, literally a miracle. Not a changing water into wine miracle, but the human-sized, the Supreme Court just affirmed gay marriage and I can make an apron kind of miracle. And though I expect to always have some days when I feel hopeless, bored, and weary to the bone, I also know that all human-sized miracles are around us every day. 
we don't need to claim every setback is really an opportunity to see that God, or whatever you call the power of good in the world, is constantly generating small sparks of change, wonder, and connection to kindle the flickering hope within us. And for that, I am extremely grateful. It's been a long time since I had read this passage. It's not my favorite. It's a little tired. Um, usually the star of this chapter is verse 16. What I was most recently struck by though when, re when I reread this was this dynamic that's going on between Jesus and Nicodemus. So we're gonna put John 3.16 on the back burner for today. One of the reasons I wasn't crazy about this passage was because how Jesus kind of comes off. It felt a little combative, his energy. I think I reread this passage right after watching an episode of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> if I were to summarize this passage kind of through the lens of a Real Housewives episode, it'd go like this. And well, I guess before I go there, in case you aren't familiar with the show, it's a reality series. There's a bunch of them, they're based in different cities where groups of women who are frenemies, I guess, uh, they're notorious, some of them are wealthy, and one of them commits some sort of social faux pas against the other, and then they talk about it for 22 episodes. And then there's a three-episode reunion where they talk about it some more. I'm not really selling it well, but um, anyway. So, if I were to interpret this through that lens, Nicodemus is a total Carol from Real Housewives of New York. He's the calm one, a good friend, sounding board, poised, educated, and always able to navigate a tricky situation. Jesus is a Nini from Real Housewives of Atlanta. He's eccentric, sucks the air out of every room he goes into, Total Nini behavior. Just stick with me here, I promise. My first take does evolve. Nicodemus tries not to make a scene, so he goes to Jesus at night. He's seen Jesus do some crazy stuff, and so he's got some questions. Again, he's the calm one. So he does a one-on-one -on -one instead of creating some drama by doing this in a big group thing. He says to Jesus, I know who you are and you're awesome. Well, Jesus doesn't receive this well. Um, he receives it sideways, and his response is, you've got to be born from above. Well, that's a confusing thing to say, Jesus. So Nicodemus asks some clarifying questions. Jesus, who woke up on the wrong side of the bed, says to him, and here, I thought you were a teacher of Israel. He says that to a teacher of Israel. That's a really nasty thing to say, Jesus. Then Jesus goes on to say some stuff about eternal life and all that. Now my first take does evolve here, but when I first read this, what really came up for me was kind of this old idea that I have of God from when I was younger. This idea of uh, wag your finger um, at you in disapproval, Jesus. This shame on you, Jesus, came up for me. And I wondered, is that what's really going on here between Nicodemus and Jesus? 
Let's dig into my second take, meaning I'll provide a little more context and perspective, which is not the strength of reality television. In chapter two of John, we learn that while attending the Passover festival in Jerusalem, it's likely that Nicodemus saw Jesus perform miracles. And this is why Nicodemus seeks Jesus out. He knows that Jesus is special, but he has questions. He goes at night to have a rabbi-to-rabbi conversation. Nicodemus is a public figure, and he doesn't want to be seen with this perceived troublemaker. He starts off by acknowledging who Jesus is. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with that person. We know who you are, God, because of what you've done. We also learn at the end of chapter 2 of John that Jesus knows that people are following him because he's done miracles. But they don't know what this is all about yet. They just know that he's special. Nicodemus is unwittingly, in his introduction to Jesus, saying to him that I too am one of these people that you cannot entrust yourself to yet. Knowing this, Jesus gets to the point with Nicodemus right away. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus finds this confusing because the only thing he knows about birth is that he was born from his mother's womb. So he responds, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb? Fair question. Nicodemus is confused. He doesn't really know what Jesus is saying here. He doesn't know. I hate not knowing things. I'm someone who is comfortable knowing things and not comfortable not knowing. I love a good trivia night, especially when I know answers that no one else does. <laughs> a bad trivia night is when everyone on your team knows the answers to all the questions and you don't, or you know a few and they also know. The reason this is a problem for me is because no one's a hero. When everyone knows the answers, there's no hero. I love knowing the answer to the questions no one else does. My categories are history, pop culture, reality television. One example of this was one night during the pandemic, my friends and I partook, is that a word, uh, in a Zoom trivia night. Everybody was doing pretty good, so there were no heroes. So then we get to this question, and the question is, complete these lyrics. On a hot summer night, he wrote blank loves blank. I do remember this like it was yesterday. I looked at my screen, I looked at my friends, I looked in their eyes, and I know these are not Joe Diffie fans. They don't know the answer to this. But I did. The answer was, of course, Billy Bob loves Charlene. My teammates, they looked at me, they looked in my eyes, and asked, are you sure? And I got to say, 100%. Knowing is satisfying, it's comfortable, you get to be a hero. Not knowing is uncomfortable, and you're never a hero. Now, Nicodemus is used to being a hero. He's the guy you want on your trivia team. He knows stuff. 
He's dedicated his entire life to studying the law. If anyone were prepared to navigate a tricky conversation with Jesus, it's him. Jesus continues the conversation. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Now, I had always thought that this verse was referring to water baptism. One of the commentaries that I read introduced something, a new take on this, and one that had an impact on me. What's suggested in this commentary is that Jesus is actually referring to what Nicodemus brought up, which is a physical birth. When Nicodemus asked the question, how can one be born again? He's actually referring here, according to this commentary, that Jesus is referring to what Nicodemus brought up. He's actually trying to connect with Nicodemus here by using Nicodemus's question. His effort to continue to connect to Nicodemus continues in verse 9 when he says, when Nicodemus asked the question, how can this be? Jesus responds with his question, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? What originally I thought was a nasty question, I think what's happening here is that Jesus is attempting to call out the very thing that's preventing Nicodemus from understanding. All of Nicodemus, the education and experience that he brings with him that day, is getting in the way because what Jesus is trying to introduce to Nicodemus is not old, it's something new and radically new. Jesus tries again to connect to Nicodemus, to build another bridge for him with a reference he knew a rabbi would understand. He refers back to a story from Numbers where the Israelites were rebelling against God and so God sends serpents to punish them. And when they, the Israelites beg for mercy, God instructs Moses to make a bronze serpent. And anyone who looks at the serpent will be healed. And it says in John 3, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is trying to connect with Nicodemus with a message of mercy he knew a rabbi would understand. Don't you see, Nicodemus, he's thinking, I too will be lifted up. It's clear that in Nicodemus and his seeking of answers, that it didn't end with his conversation. We do get hints throughout John of how Nicodemus and his seeking of answers impacted him. In chapter 7, we find Nicodemus coming to the defense of Jesus before the Sanhedrin when they're calling for Jesus to be arrested. We get another glimpse of Nicodemus following the crucifixion. Nicodemus appears again with myrrh and aloes to give Jesus a proper burial. Jesus made an impact on this seeking rabbi and their conversation led Nicodemus to make the decision to take the risk in front of his peers of the Sanhedrin to take a stand for this perceived troublemaker. My first take on John chapter 3 was way off. Turns out that Nicodemus and I have that in common. Jesus is not the curmudgeonly professor upset with dumb questions from his students. He's trying to connect with this Jewish leader so that he might be able to receive this message. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life.
Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, someone who was authorized to enter people's homes and inspect their belongings and valuables and determine what was owed to the government. Any earned profit would be in excess of what was due to Rome, which the collector could aggressively pursue for their own benefit. The process of collecting taxes was inconsistent and non-transparent. Suffice it to say, a chief tax collector wasn't winning any popularity contest in those times. This was around the final weeks before entering Jerusalem. Jesus had recently been found spending time with and helping to foster growth in other sinners, which many people called into question. His encounter with the elite tax collector is the last of such accounts. For many, it was a bold demonstration of Jesus' intent to embrace any who would follow him and accept the beliefs supported by the crowd assembled that day, despite the reputation of any such potential follower. Before I moved to Chicago last year, I worked for an LGBT advocacy organization in New York State. Our top legislative priority was non-discrimination protections for transgender New Yorkers, especially LGBTQ youth. Each year, this bill would come up for debate in the legislature, and there was one very conservative assemblyman who would aggressively denounce the merits of the measure. He would claim, and many would follow his speculations, that the bill would enable men to put on dresses to enter and threaten the safety of women in bathrooms. It was nerve-wracking to watch and a complete distraction from the reality of the legis what the legislation would actually do, protect the most vulnerable among us. Every year was a heated debacle, painful to listen as LGBT legislators and allies would fight back. It would go in for hours, it helped to educate no one, and the bill went nowhere for years. I decided to approach this legislator that most within our community feared and detested. So the way it works in the New York Capitol is you send in a business card to a security guard and ask if any given member would like to speak with you while you wait in the lobby, which, by the way, is literally why it's called lobbying. Much to my surprise, he immediately came into the foyer and asked, where are all the gay advocates? I waved my hand and said, present. And he came over quickly and said, you want to talk to me? I said, well, yes, Assemblyman, I do. Because we may have a chance to help each other. We spoke at length, amicably, and I asked if he'd ever met a trans person before. He had not. My colleagues and activists around were like, why are you talking to the most homophobic and transphobic person in Albany? I responded, you never know. He clearly has an interest in this issue if he wants to raise concerns year after year. Let's hear what he has to say. A week later, we extended an invitation, and he attended a reception our organization was hosting. We introduced him to a native, transgender New Yorker, and the mother of a trans son 
who had attempted suicide because his transition was so difficult in isolated upstate New York. They spoke for two hours about the scariest moments of their lives, things that kept them up at night, how they could help one another, you name it. He asked many questions, but he mostly listened quite intently. I won't share all the details of the next year, but we stayed in touch. Some of his initial concerns about the bill were addressed, and eventually it became law with his full support. It was a moment of relief and triumph and belief in humanity. With so much turmoil, tension, and uncertainty in the world right now, this scripture reminds us of a critical lesson. The thing about Jesus is he loved and believed in everyone of every background or any reputation or past harmful rhetoric. If we are open to putting the past aside, we can believe in a future connection. Differences don't have to divide. We can sometimes just listen and pray that change and progress are possible. Now, many of us will remember the nursery school song about this scripture. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. It's this last part, for the Lord he wanted to see, that intrigues me the most. Zacchaeus, disliked or even despised by many in the crowd, was so excited to see Jesus that he ran ahead of the crowd and climbed a sycamore tree, for he was limited in his ability to see over the crowd. This is not something a chief tax collector probably would ever do. So why would he? Naturally, Jesus had generated a significant following by this time. Perhaps the thrill of the crowd was too much to pass up. Maybe Zacchaeus had a recent revelation that compelled him to change, or maybe he was simply just curious. I can't imagine how fancy his tax collector's clothes were, but he clearly wasn't worried about those while he was climbing a tree. Who knows exactly? We don't know. We don't need to know why. We just need to accept that he wanted to see Jesus and listen to what he had to say. For the Lord, he wanted to see. Jesus recognized Zacchaeus's bold move and shockingly embraced it publicly. He demanded that Zacchaeus come down for the tree for he must stay at his home that evening. It was a demonstration that despite their perceived differences and past reputation, there was still an opportunity for a meaningful connection. With that gesture alone, Zacchaeus immediately acknowledged his past behavior, but also his desire to be incredibly generous from here forward and even make up for past times where he may have taken advantage of anyone more vulnerable in society. Because of Jesus' desire to embrace difference and opportunity, the tax collector was afforded a chance to make amends and follow Jesus like everyone else that day. And who knows what they discussed over dinner that night. Maybe they also discussed the scariest moments of their lives, the things that kept them up at night, how they could help one another, you name it. We don't 
need to know the details, but we know that they believed in a future together and tried to just listen for the Lord they both wanted to see. Thanks be to God. Amen.